Hi, it's Hal Anderson coming up on the podcast. Aaron Moore, a political science professor at the University of Winnipeg. We have four council incumbents that are not being challenged. We'll talk about it. Jasmine Colucci joins us from Canine Advocates Manitoba. There is a new documentary out called Fostering Hope. And she is at the center of it. We'll talk about her. And Adrian Leslie Toogood, a sports psychologist on why we cheer so hard for Tiger. Tiger Woods, after everything he has done. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. Aaron Moore joins us now on the phone. Aaron is a political science professor at the University of Winnipeg. Good afternoon, sir. Hey, good afternoon, Hal. Thanks for doing this. So we've got four councillor candidates unopposed at this point. Matt Allard in St. Bonavis, Jeff Browati in North Kildonan, Brian Mays in St. Vitell, and Janice Lukes, who, of course, is moving over uh, to that new ward of Waverly West. You know, we bitch and complain a lot about these councillors and other politicians not doing a good job, and yet here we go. We've got four wards where the same people are going back in, and I'm not saying they haven't done a good job, or or maybe that's why we're not seeing any challengers uh, in these wards. What do you think, Aaron? Uh, you know, it, it's always hard to say with the motivation for people not to run uh, because, you know, anybody could pick at the municipal level. Um, one of the biggest problems, though, in uh, um, municipal uh, elections, particularly for councils, that it's very, very hard to defeat an incumbent. Uh, so if you're serious about entering an election, it makes a lot more sense to look for a ward where there's nobody running than trying to beat somebody who's uh, been there for, in some cases, decades. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest hurdles there is the, the fact that incumbents get a massive advantage in municipal elections. Yeah, and we're certainly seeing that in other areas where an incumbent isn't running and we have several candidates trying to get the seat. Yeah, I think that that's not what you see. I mean, if people are really interested in getting into politics and they have at least some political knowledge, they're going to identify the best opportunities uh, to do so, and that's going to be where seats are uh, open. And uh, you often get, in some instances, the more interesting uh, um, competitions because of that. Um, usually when you see re- or, uh, strong candidates uh, opposing incumbents, it's usually somebody who's been an MLA or has had success elsewhere um, so as a name recognition to go up against them. But if you don't have that, it can be very difficult to run against them. What races at the civic level are you watching as we head to October? Uh, there's a lot of them. Obviously, the uh, mayoral race. Uh, well, I shouldn't say the mayoral race. Uh, right now, I don't think it's actually that interesting. It remains to be seen if we'll get it stronger candidates entering, um, entering in, in it. Yeah. Um, I am very interested in the referendum on uh, Portage and Maine, in part yes. because I think it's silly we're having one. Um, so that, to me, might be the most uh, interesting um, part of this election. But then we have, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Scott Gillingham, and I forget the other uh, councillor's name, running against each other. Um, so that's two incumbents facing off in one ward. Uh, mm-hmm. So that will be really good. You mentioned the race for mayor. We've got a ninth candidate in there, but by the sounds of it, you don't think any of these candidates have much of a chance against Bowman, eh? You know, the, right now, there aren't any really high-profile candidates. The media is focusing on one specific candidate, I think, um, largely because 
she's really gone after the mayor and his record. Um, but other than, but aside from her, there hasn't been much media attention for any of the other candidates. And even her case, I don't think she's going to appeal to a large enough portion of the electorate to really challenge Bowman. This latest candidate, by the way, is a Hindu priest, and I guess we'll we'll see what happens. Um, you mentioned Portage in Maine. Do you think we're going to get another issue or two for this election before we all go to the polls in October? I mean, as you said, it's kind of a silly issue, uh, and it's really the only one that's been in the spotlight at all. Uh, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, the... Uh, real race hasn't started yet. I think that'll start in the fall, leading mm. up to the actual uh, election. Right. Um, right now, though, I, you know, I am waiting to see: Are we going to have any serious <laughs> issues uh, to uh, debate in this uh, election among candidates? Because Portage and Maine, basing the entire election on that, is silly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's uh, we we could talk broader about uh, road infrastructure. Um, water infrastructure. There's a lot of other things um, we can discuss, uh, but there doesn't seem to have really been anything that's galvanized the public so far. Mm. Um, so part of it will be what the councillors or the uh, candidates themselves decide to talk about. Um, and it's really uh, Brian Bowman is in a position where he can still, I think, um, uh, determine what most of the election is going to be about, although I think that the, the um, Portage and Maine issue has kind of caught him off guard. Yeah, I actually think the Portage and Maine issue uh, runs deeper. I think it's about who can spend our money the best. Who's the best at spending our tax dollars? Because when Portage and Maine comes up on the air, I hear from people, yes, about the safety of pedestrians and the opening up of the iconic intersection. But more than anything, I hear about the dollars being spent and the dollars could maybe be better spent elsewhere. I think that really is what is at the heart of this issue, Portage and Maine. It's about spending tax dollars and who can do the best job at that. I think that is a big part of it, and that's often at the municipal level because there isn't, I mean, there is obviously there's left-wing and right-wing candidates, but for the most part, um, there's not a lot of difference between the uh, candidates' uh, platforms. So um, focusing on who you think will make the best decisions, um, and particularly when it comes to spending, is pretty important. Uh, I also think there's, a, I think, a fairly clear suburban um, sort of inner-city downtown divide that's happening here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a lot of suburbanites, this is an issue that really isn't on the radar because they don't even go into the downtown. And then there's others who do, but largely as a means of commuting. Um, and that's obviously clashing with people who live or work in the downtown regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, the the issue with that whole focus on the spending, though, is in the grand scheme of things, we're talking maybe $15 million. I'm yeah. not even sure if it'll right. be that much compared to we're spending over $100 million for the uh, Waverly overpass. So, you know, pe- people do need to sort of focus on the perspective of how much money we're spending on these types of things. I'm not necessarily advocating for or against it. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> again, this is ra- rather small. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, for for um, this is a rather small issue to dominate an entire mayoral election. Uh, so, you know, we could be talking about broader issues about are we spending infrastructure money in general in a good way or not, or are we wasting it um, rather than uh, focusing on that one specific uh, project. Hey, Aaron, one last question before I let you go here. You know, we have civic elections, we have provincial elections, we have federal elections. I really believe that this civic election is more important than provincial and federal elections. These councillors and the mayor we elect, they really can change our lives the most. Isn't that true? 
Well, I would certainly think so, though I'm, you know, a scholar of uh, municipal politics, so mm. I'm predisposed to that. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's always interesting because people tend to follow the federal uh, the federal level the most, even though I, you know, in their daily lives, federal level doesn't really impact them too much, mm. and then and descending to the provincial and then the municipal, and yet. Um, certainly, when you go out and you're using the, the infrastructure, when you're using most services, it's the municipality that provides them for you. Um, so in your daily life, the, the municipality is much more important and will have, a, as you said, a very significant impact on uh, how you live your life. Uh, the decisions they make will have that impact. Aaron, appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a good day. Aaron Moore, political science professor at the University of Winnipeg. And I, I get Aaron's point that Portage and Maine, in the big picture, is a small amount. 15 million at the most, probably less than that. But I really do think that people that don't want anything done at Portage and Maine see it as a waste of money. And I think it's uh, it's about the money. It's not about that number, 15 million, but it's about you're wasting 15 million on Portage and Maine. So maybe there's somebody better who can spend my money on more important items. I think that's kind of at the heart of it. Jasmine's loved animals her entire life. She's brought home more stray dogs and cats. I've always had a heart for animals. If I ever see anything like injured on the side of the road, anything, then I've always stopped to pick it up, help it. That is from the new documentary called Fostering Hope. You can see it tomorrow night, 7.30 at the Park Theatre. And the person at the center of that documentary is Jasmine Colucci from Canine Advocates Manitoba. And she joins us on the phone now. Good afternoon, Jasmine. Hi, Hal. Hi. Congratulations on the documentary. Tell me how this uh, came to be. Um, I actually was contacted um by a woman, Libby and Chris, with Frank uh, Digital. Mm-hmm. And they kind of threw the idea out there to CBC and said, um, they they first phoned me and listened to my story, and they're like, oh, my gosh, we need to do something with this. So um, there was a man, Liam, that was behind it, too. I just They all just watched what uh, the kind of struggles that I was going through with all of this, and, and they decided to just tell my story. Yeah, and people can see this tomorrow night at the Park Theatre. Uh, have you seen it? Are you happy with it? Um, I saw the shortcut version because the version that's on CBC is actually had to be cut down to 45 minutes, and there there was a lot more filming done from that. So what's going to be shown at the Park Theatre tomorrow is more in-depth of the truth, so the uncut version, basically. Yeah. And I haven't seen that one yet. Well, I'm, I haven't, I've seen bits and pieces, and let me just tell you that it looks great. Uh, how did Canine Advocates Manitoba come to be? This is essentially you, right, helping every stray you see out there. <laughs> yes. So I, uh, I'm First Nations myself, and uh, I started working in a First Nations community, uh, helping my people and... Also, while I was driving through, because I'm a home and community care nurse, uh, I saw the amount of animals, the the overpopulation. I saw the dog bite wounds. Um, You know, I I have the raw realness of the problem. And I'm the type of person that just wants to kind of save 
everything and everybody, and I couldn't just turn my eye from it. So I started Canine Advocates to, you know, start uh, donations of dog food. So I feed these dogs every every single day. You know, lots of people can't afford dog food up here. So, yeah, um, yeah and then the, a lot get hit by cars, uh, fight each other because there's an intact female. So I also um, use the donations to, for the longest time, I didn't have any donations because I'm not the best at fundraising. So I used my own money to actually bring them in, all the females here. So there isn't any intact females left in Blood Vein First Nation. Um, I brought them all in and spayed them and brought them all back to their owners. And whatever dogs people didn't want, I found new homes for. I either had to fly them out to Toronto or... BC somewhere or drive them there myself um, because Manitoba is just so overpopulated. It's amazing what you've done for dogs, but for animals of all types, is it true that you took care of a bear at one point? (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, when you live in the middle of nowhere, there's all types of animals that get injured. I've had uh, um, woodpeckers, come in unfortunately that one didn't make it but the bear had a happy ending it i guess it was attacked by coyotes and so i brought it home (laughs) wow and in the trailer i play a little bit of it there before we started talking but in the trailer is it your mom that is upset about poop everywhere and urine everywhere (laughs) and i can't live like this anymore because of jasmine and her dogs Yes, my parents actually have, like, the biggest heart. They're just amazing humans, and they have helped me and supported me 100% along the way. Like, I've brought home puppies that were kind of on their deathbed, and my dad cuddles them until they pass away, or he's actually syringe-fed them until they, you know, get enough energy to be able to go get adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, they have a smaller house, and we've had to keep lots <laughs> in the kitchen. Yeah. We them in there. And it just takes its toll on our quality of life and their quality of life. And um, this documentary, you know, I'm kind of opening up. I'm being a little raw about... Um, our life mm-hmm. and the tolls it's actually taking. A lot of people think, oh, they're just cute puppies. And like, yeah, okay, <laughs> come over, do this. Have thousands of dogs come yeah. to your house. And What's the most amount of dogs you've had in your house at one time? Oh, my goodness. I'd, I'd probably have to say around 29 to 30. Wow. Um, that yeah, is dedication, but- <laughs> Jasmine. I mean, that's dedication. Yeah, well, animal services isn't too happy about that one, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, some of these dogs are in pretty rough shape as well. Like, I saw one in the trailer where it had... Is it is it called Mange? Yeah. Oh, oh that's, that's just... Heartbreaking. The, yeah, we've, we've had lots in conditions like that, and even worse, to be mm. honest. Yeah. Wow. And so if people want to help Canine Advocates Manitoba, which is basically your organization, uh, are you going to somehow use this documentary to raise some money so you can help the dogs? Or what's the best way? If somebody's hearing this and they go, man, she's doing good work, I want to help her out, what's the best way to help? You know, donations help because it costs, you know, upwards to $400 to fly these dogs out mm-hmm. uh, for, per, per kennel. 
um, through WestJet. But ideally, what we want to do is kind of just lobby the government and keep emailing them and bugging them. If you go on our page on the Canine Advocates Manitoba uh, Facebook page, we actually give emails of the people in government that we would like for people to email to um, try and get some change here in Manitoba, really. Mm -hmm. Because there's contraceptives out there that are just um, injections, and it's just a quick poke. It's called Zuterin. It goes in the male's testicles, and it's good for 15 years. So, And they have that in the States. Why can't that come to Canada? Mm-hmm. It's things like that. I just want the options. I want you know the government to maybe figure out other options that we could do to just help control this population so there's less suffering out there because I've, I've seen my fair share of suffering and I'm just kind of done with it. Yeah. Well, you do it all. You're a lobbyist. You're lobbying, uh, you know, <laughs> government officials. You're feeding dogs, taking care of dogs, filling your house with dogs. Uh, it's a great story. Congratulations on Fostering Hope, this documentary again tomorrow night, 7.30 Park Theatre. People can see it, $10. And if you want to help out Jasmine uh, Colucci and what she does at Canine Advocates Manitoba, you can find her on Facebook. Jasmine, thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Hal. Really appreciate it. And I want to thank my friend uh, Tracy over at Earth Dog who told me about uh, this documentary, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it. The trailer has hooked me. It's called Fostering Hope. And again, Park Theater tomorrow night, 7.30, 10 bucks if you want to go and check it out. Get a first screening, Jasmine Colucci. Great organization. And as you know, I am a dog guy. Big dog lover. And boy, when somebody like Jasmine gives that much of herself to helping animals like that, I think the least we can do is give her five or ten bucks uh, so that it's a bit easier for her doing the work. Right now, let's talk about this. Got a twirl on it, BK. Oh, what a shot. Tiger Woods making memories here at Bell Reeve. That's another one. Listen to the crowd roar for Tiger Woods at the PGA Championship on the weekend. In the end, he fell just a bit short. Here's my question. After everything with Tiger, why do people want him to win again so badly? Why are they cheering him on? Joining us on the phone now to talk about it, sports psychologist Dr. Adrian Leslie Toogood. Good afternoon, Doc. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for doing this. So what is it? Do we love an underdog? Uh, why are we so enthralled about Tiger Woods? Well, I think that uh, a lot of times our heroes, we can't tell that they're human because we just see the uh, the positives in their life. And I think for Tiger, he's someone who was forced to kind of show his human side and a side that we can all relate to. He obviously made mistakes. He had to accept accountability for it. And I think as well, his road back has been, uh, you know, had a lot of challenges involved in it as well. And I think we can all relate to that, right? We've all made mistakes. We've done bad things. Um, He's struggling to get to where he was before, and, you know, I think that uh, it's easy for us to support that. Yeah, we'll talk about the psychology for him in a second. So we forgive some people. Obviously, we've forgiven Tiger, but we don't forgive others. What's that all about? (laughs) Um, You know, it's probably, uh, I think maybe Tiger's really relatable. You know, I think that he has a good story coming into golf. And again, I think he's very human and we connect to, uh, you know, that, that human part. 
you know, I'm not sure why we forgive others and, and don't forgive some. I think there's probably a, you know, that could be a, a longer conversation. Yeah. Uh, but he's definitely someone that uh, a lot of people want to see succeed. I think the other reality of the situation is he's a, a pretty special athlete and uh, he's capable of doing some pretty pretty amazing things and uh, people admire that as well. He certainly is. You know, I'm not even a golf guy, but I was watching on Sunday afternoon, which is crazy. <laughs> I mean, that just explains right there uh, the interest yeah. in this guy. Well, and I think that uh, all the players and PGA uh, Tour, uh, they know that reality as well. And they know that when Tiger's playing and Tiger's playing well, there's a ton more people involved. I think as well, we, if we take a big picture, you know, I used to work at Kansas State University. And interestingly, Tiger's dad actually, uh, he played baseball there. Ah. And so uh, that's where the first tee program started in the States. And what we also need to recognize about Tiger is he brought a whole other generation of people to the game of golf, right? Mm-hmm. Like he is an African-American uh, person that plays golf and that that was rare and new and I think he's fought a lot of battles and perhaps people also have respect for that as well because uh, anyone who does things for the first time it's, it's a tough road and you you know you have to be perfect you're scrutinized and he was scrutinized and you know obviously the pressure and challenges got to him but I think we can relate to that as well. Well and he hasn't won a tournament yet I think a lot of people believe that he will win another tournament uh, what an incredible comeback story, though, because as you know, Doc, I don't have to tell you this, a lot of sports is between the ears, and what a comeback for him, even if he doesn't win another tournament, eh? Yeah, well, and I think through through it all, uh, because of the situation, he's really been forced to learn a lot about himself, and uh, even when you, you know, he's gone back to... Uh, basics, you know, he's relying on himself again, uh, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, he'd surrounded himself by a lot of great, very great professionals and great swing coaches, but he was starting to listen to them instead of himself. And, you know, I do, I think he had to uh, grow up too. And I think that's something that a lot of people wanted to see as well was him to own his mistakes and be a bit more accountable. And, uh, He's grown, I think, as a golfer, but also as a person off the golf course. And, uh, you know, I think that's admired as well. Well, and it's interesting, too, to see some of these young golfers now that are winning these tournaments. They're muscular. They're sort of the way Tiger was when Tiger came on the scene, right? And now it's kind of becoming normal in the game of golf. (laughs) It definitely is. And that's something that people don't understand as well is the depth in the sport of golf, especially on the men's side. It's very, very difficult to make it. And so the challenge for Tiger is when he played, you know, he was so much I don't want to say he was so much better than everyone, but he was a very strong competitor for sure. Whereas now there's just a ton of people in the field that have the ability to win on any given day. And so I think it's a whole different game. And perhaps he had to wrap his head around that when he came back as well, is that it is a different game. And he had to embrace that challenge rather than expecting to, you know, be guaranteed to win if he played his game. He could play his game and still might not win right now. Hey, Doc, one final bonus question. Is there one sport where you need to have a stronger mind than another sport, or do you need a strong brain, a strong head on all of them? <laughs> I think at the highest levels, uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's very much a differentiating factor, and I think that uh, all sports have a mental component for sure. I do think the sport of golf is unique in that you're out there for four hours, and, I mean, we could shut you in a room for four hours, not on a golf course, and you'd have lots of thoughts that weren't helpful and lots yeah. of emotions going through. So, right. you know, I think that there's, The sports that have that downtime uh, and that technical skill component can be tough. So, you know, we don't think of this, but curling is another sport like that, too. Lots of downtime, lots of time to get in your head. Yeah, that's a very good point. Hey, Adrian, thanks a lot for this. I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. That is Adrian Leslie Too Good. She's a sports psychologist.